How many of you feel unstoppable today? Whew, man, you need this message. Uh, so I'm going to preach it to you this morning. We're going to start a new sermon series uh, called Unstoppable Force, and it'll be over, over the next, next couple of weeks. weeks uh, I, think I think one of the things, of the things that, happens that happens to us a lot of times is we feel defeated on most cases in most scenarios. And so I'm a little bit encouraged this morning. I've already preached this once this morning, and in uh, our second week, our morning service is beginning to grow a little bit, so it was an awesome start. And if you look around, there's a little bit more chairs in here. So the good part is that makes more room for you to invite people to church and for them to be in here. Amen? Okay. We're not starting good, people. So let's, uh, let's dig into this. Uh, how many of you remember when you were little wanting to grow taller, wanting to grow bigger? Does anybody remember that? Where there was this benchmark, and usually it's the size of your parents, that you're looking at your parents and you're wondering, going, man, if I could just be their height, I could accomplish so much more. Anybody with me this morning? Uh, I remember uh, when I was five foot one and kind of trying to grow and be the basketball player that I'd always dreamed of being, uh, and then I topped out at five foot ten. Uh, not many five foot ten guys in the NBA, uh, but who knows? Uh, maybe God had other plans for me, but I, I remember being a kid, and I think I shared this a, a, a few weeks ago, uh, but I also remember being in like eighth grade and ninth grade, and I was working out all the time, and I was running, and I mean, it was crazy. I had abs. Now, I still have abs, but you could actually see them in eighth and ninth grade, and you can't see them now, and so it, it's... I know they're there. They didn't get surgically removed, I don't think. Uh, but it's one of those times in my life where I was strong and I was looking at things and I was like, man, I, I, could, I could beat up just about anybody. And so like I started looking at people and going, yeah, I could take him, I could take him. And it was funny because I remember looking at my dad one time and going, I think I could beat the old man. It was about that time, about a week later, my brother walks in the house and he starts mouthing off to my dad. My dad twists him up and turns him into a pretzel and lays him on the ground. And I was like, I'm going to give him a few more weeks. Like, and to this day, I still have never tested him. But one of the milestones in our house uh, is when our youngest grew taller than our oldest. Has this happened in anybody else's house? Uh, we just have like abnormal genes or something like that. But it was interesting because now Carly like walks around towering over her big sister and, and it's just this awkward Cain and Abel moment where they think they can try. It's just weird, right? Uh, but it's funny because we think about this and we feel grown at a certain point. We feel like we can grow to a point and grow and all these things and we, if we just grow, we'd be okay, right? So this morning, I want to talk to you and just kind of give an illustration and an understanding. Let me start with this nugget of truth for you this morning. Reese's, and if you don't agree, we're going to have a problem. Reese's peanut butter cups are the best candy that has ever existed. Listen, no nonsense here. We speak the truth in this church, amen? And so I, I want you to think with me because there's, Reese's has this thing figured out to the nth degree. I mean, they, they get it. They understand it, right? Like this is one of those companies that you can find like all these different size Reese's peanut butter cups. Now, this is a tough thing because I've been on a diet for the past couple of months and Reese's peanut butter cups have been tempting me all morning. And I haven't eaten one, but I may indulge this afternoon. But I want you to think with me. 
How many of you have seen these bite-sized Reese's peanut butter cups? Now, this is a good solution, but listen, if you eat just one of these, it makes me mad. Like, what are you going to do to this? And you begin to kind of wonder and go, how is this going to satisfy? How is this going to view? And so you begin to look at the bag and you go, well, you know what? We're going to operate on self-control. And so I'm going to self-control this and I will just have one peanut butter cup. Anybody, anybody been here? We go, man, this is good. And then you go, here's kind of the, the average, right? Like you're, you're not obese if you only eat two. Uh, you're not too skinny if you eat too. Like, we kind of try to find this semblance of something. But I want you to think this morning. Well, let me stop before we go spiritual for just a second. Because I think this will make the point a little bit better. How many of you have been trick-or-treating and somebody gave out these? And you're like, oh, that's sweet. Next house. Then you go to the next one and they may have given out these and you're like, okay, those are good people. And you go to this place and you're like, sweet, great people. Listen, if you give out these, everybody thinks you're rich. Like you get back to the house and you're like, did you see the rich house on the corner? They gave out king size. I, I remember we were uh, trick-or-treating in Royal Oaks a couple years ago, which is probably the monstrosity of trick-or-treating in this area. And as we were walking, there was a house giving out full-size pixie sticks. Like, this is the hand of God. Like, I promise you, everybody that received the full size or the king size looked at that house and all of their friends and said, don't ever mess with that house. We love them. Like, right? So it's one of those things that kind of comes with this. And so uh, this morning, I want you to think with me because I think Reese's, in this strange kind of crazy way, gives us a picture and an understanding of maybe how we view God. For some, God is bite-sized for you. Very, very small. Maybe you feel like God can do like little things and he kind of comes through as this little snack to try to get you through the rest of the day. But just a, a little tiny bit of who he is, is that I, I'm, 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 I'm here. This is it. Maybe you've grown to a point where you trust the Lord just a little bit more and you're like, man, I'm a one cup God kind of guy. Where you just, he's, he satisfies me at about two o'clock in the afternoon. I don't need anything until dinner. If I just eat one cup, maybe he can kind of fulfill this. You're starting to kind of commit just a little bit more, but then you can see that just a little bit of hunger pain and this will begin to ease it. I think... This is where a lot of people sit, where this is kind of the average Christian. Like, this is just average, right? Not too much of God, not too little of God, but this is, I don't really trust him. I just, I pick him up every once in a while from a Parker's, and he kind of satisfies me, and I just, I, I have this semblance of who he is, and maybe this is your view of God. Can I tell you that I would guess the majority of Christians live with a bite-sized, small God that they don't feel like 
and understand can really accomplish much. Let me illustrate it this way. When you eat a king size, you're full. I mean, when this goes in the belly, life is good. And this heavenly peanut butter satisfies just the right amount of chocolate to peanut butter ratio. Anybody want a Reese's? Stay awake the whole service, amen, ten times, and there's a whole bag over there for you, okay? Uh, But I want you to think with me this morning because the reality is this, this is how we should view God. Almost is too much for us to consume. Almost as if he's too big for us to even fully understand. Now, some of you are going, Jeff, you don't understand. I put away six of those. And I would tell you, go see your doctor. Like, this is, that's... We're, we're, we're transitioning where Reese's is an illustration to who God is. But I want you to understand, if you see God in the right way, you'll begin to serve him right. I think one of the things that comes with this, this great concern is this. When your view of God is small, you do small things for God. When your view of him is tiny, bite-sized, where he's just enough, you do small things for him. You don't understand how big God is and how great he is and what he can accomplish. So this morning, I want to share a couple of attributes with you that just give us a full understanding of who God is. And there's moral attributes and there's natural attributes, but I just want to share three of them with you this morning that will help you know a little bit more about how big God is. So the first attribute is this, that God is omnipotent. This is usually termed together as God is our omnipotent Father. The definition is this, having unlimited power, all-powerful Imagine this, that God is so big that he is not limited by power. Have you ever gotten to a point where maybe you're in this age bracket where you start to try to do something and you realize you're not as powerful as you used to be? Now, the understanding is when I go play golf, if I play golf with somebody and they outdrive me, I look at them as more powerful than me. And I love the fact that I outdrive my dad every time we go play. Anybody amen on that one? It's crazy to think that sometimes we measure this power, but God's power is not limited. He never fails. He never doesn't pull through. His power is unlimited. Paul says it this way in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 19. He says, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? Imagine that power is given to us that when we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, he gives us the power to move forward, the power to go forward, the power to do his will. When we begin to understand this a little bit more in verse 20, he says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Imagine that God is putting his power on display and saying, listen, I gave you my son. He died on the cross for your sins. 
He rose again three days later. He spent time on this earth being visible for all people to see. And still you have a bite-sized view of God. I asked this morning, why do we not see him as this? If he is omnipotent, he is that all-powerful. And I love what verse 21 says because it sums everything up in a clear package. He is far above rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Imagine that his power is on display in every generation. Imagine that we see it from our perspective in a small view, but if you look back generation after generation after generation, God's power is always there. I love the little story of kids kind of describing who their dad is. When you're little, you kind of describe your dad as a superhero, right? Like, my dad can bust through this, and he's strong, and he can do this. There's two kids kind of going back and forth, saying, my dad is this strong, my dad is this strong, and they were beginning to go back and forth, and they were trying to kind of figure out how big and how strong and how great their dad was. This third kid that walked in and his dad had passed away. He looked at the other two and he goes, my God is all powerful and he is my God. You can imagine that if we have the correct view of who God is, we will begin to see the power that he displays. The second attribute that I want you to understand this morning is that he is omnipresent. The definition is that he is present everywhere at all times. He is always there with you. He is not confined by space. He is not confined by time. He is always present. One of the things that is kind of crazy is last night, my, my youngest daughter and I were coming back from Cordell. We got in about 40 minutes, and we were on a back road in Bleckley County, Beckley County, whatever it's called. And I came over a hill, and there was a big black dog standing right in the middle of the road. And unfortunately, I hit it. I'm sitting there going, man, I pull over, I make sure that Carly's okay, and make sure that I'm okay, and I check the car and kind of begin to wonder how we're going to begin to get home. And in this moment, if you've never been through this as a kid, it's a little bit traumatic. So she was a, a little bit concerned and a little bit kind of freaking out. It was funny because it allowed us to have a conversation a little bit further because she said, Dad, why were you so calm in that moment? And I said, because I know that God is with me in everything that I do. There's no fear in that. I know that he's with me. I know that he can handle this. I know that he can take care of this. Some of it's my personality and my, how he's designed me. But I love what Jeremiah chapter 23 and verse 24 says. Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. I love that he tells them, he says, 
Can you hide from me? There's no place for you to hide. And it's almost like you give biblical sarcasm here. He says, do I not fill heaven and earth? Is every place, is everywhere present with my glory? I love the understanding that in Genesis, when Adam and Eve had sinned for the first time, they hid from God. Can you imagine this? And God goes, why did you hide? I can see everywhere. There was guilt and shame that was beginning to pile upon them. But the reality is that there's nowhere that we go that God isn't with us. When you think about God, he is not this small, insignificant God. He is this big, vast God that over billions of people on this planet, that if you are a believer, he is with you wherever you go. Omniscience. The definition is the state of knowing everything. And listen, I think this one gets a little bit of a bad rap. How many of you know a know-it-all? How many of you like them? How many of you are? No, I'm just kidding. But you think about it and you go, man, they think they know everything. You begin to look at them and go, I'll find the one thing that you don't know. Reality is, I don't want to serve a God that doesn't know everything. I love what he says in Psalm chapter 139 and verse 4. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Think about that for just a second. Before a word, before it's even formed in your mouth, God knows what you're going to say. And this is a God that knows everything, that everything is there for him. And can you imagine serving a God that is not all-knowing? You imagine a God that looks at you in the middle of a trial and says, man, I didn't see that one coming. Can you imagine serving a God that says, whew, I must have messed up when I made you. He knows everything. So this morning, my challenge to you is this. It's time to change your perspective. Look, the reality is this. When you have a small view of who God is, it's hard to do big things for him. I love the quote that a friend of mine, Brian Moore, says. It's time to stop telling God how big our problems are and start telling our problems how big our God is. Catch that. Man, we look at God and say, man, if you would just do this and do this, do Listen, if your view of God is big and vast and grand, he can work through you in a miraculous way. So I love that scripture gives us a, a, a framework, an understanding. So we're going to look in Acts chapter 21 here in just a second. But I want you to understand, Paul was an unstoppable force. He was this force to be reckoned with. He was unstoppable in his ministry. And to give you a little bit of a background, to know that Paul was a part of the Jewish faith and he was a leader in that faith. To understand when the early Christians 
the people that were just after who Jesus or after Jesus' death and ascension, they were called the way. Hey, that is the way. Those are the people that are part of the way. It's interesting because Paul made it his mission to get rid of the way. He knew that he was a taskmaster. He knew that he could hard charge and he could begin to take care of these people. So Paul began to persecute them, began to arrest them. He would go into a town, he would get the papers that were needed, and he would begin to arrest them because they were causing so much disruption. They were so bold, they were so just understanding of this big God that had just died on the cross and rose three days later that nothing could stop them. And Paul said, I am that man. I will stop him. We come up to where Paul had held the coats of the people that had stoned Stephen. The first martyr of the New Testament. The first martyr of knowing that this was a person that was in Christ. As he watched this, he was walking away, feeling accomplished, and he was going to Damascus to do the exact same thing as many of these people that were a part of the way, these early Christians. He was going to annihilate this force. And on the road to Damascus, God appears to him and he speaks to him in a powerful way and so powerful that it puts Paul on the ground of the dirt road. The light was so beaming that it blinded his eyes. He asked this question, God, is that you? God's response, why do you kick against me? Why do you kick against what I am doing? At that point, Paul becomes blind. He has to be led into the city. And I love that during this whole passage of Scripture, there's an understanding that God reveals to, those, to the individuals that are going to take Paul under their wing and disciple him and show him what it means to be a follower of Christ. The prayer, when God reveals that to him, says, God, are you sure? Is he going to kill us? They were obedient as they ministered to Paul. Paul has what's known as three missionary journeys. And on these three missionary journeys, he goes from place to place and he starts a church and he goes into the place and he makes sure that these churches are fully functioning. He finds people that are a part of the way. And in the early parts of this, I can imagine going, hey, is he trying to trick us? Is he going to sneak in here and is he going to kill us all? We come to a part where Paul was in the middle of the missionary journey. He was getting ready to go into Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 21, verse 4, he goes to kind of the, the, the people that are spiritual, the people that are holy, and, he, and they say these words. And having sought out the disciples, that we stayed there for seven days, and through the Holy Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Paul said, hey, I'm thinking about going to Jerusalem. I'm ready to minister there. And the holy men of God, the people of God, look at him and say, don't go. We pick this up in verse 10 and 11. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt. Now listen, scripture gets weird sometimes. 
Can you imagine Paul was standing there and this prophet walks up and he says, he takes his belt off of him. Now listen, if you try to take my belt, I'm hitting you. Paul allows him to take his belt off. Nagabus says, this is the result. If you go into Jerusalem, took Paul's belt and bound it around his feet and around his hands, and he said, thus says the Holy Spirit, God has revealed this to me, that if you go to Jerusalem, that this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt. Can I give you a secret? deliver him into the hand of the Gentiles. And I think Paul's view of God was not small. Paul's view of God was not average. Paul's view of God was king-sized. He knew that God could get him through anything. And listen, even though the Spirit of God was telling the people around him, don't go for some reason, Paul was being told to go. And I think this conflict happens in our spiritual walk so much. Man, we go to people and they say, oh, you shouldn't do it. But listen, you don't listen to people. You listen to the voice of God. Paul comes in and the results in chapter 21 and verse 27 and 28 I hope that you'll take some time this week and read this whole passage of Scripture because it's fascinating. He says in verse 27, When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, listen, this is a place that he ministered to previously in Asia Minor. They had come to Jerusalem, and he stirred up the whole crowd, and they laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who's teaching everyone Everywhere against the people and the law in this place. They go, this is the guy. This is the one that's causing so many problems in our community. He's telling people about Christ and he won't stop. And here's the major accusation. Moreover, he even brought Greeks, Gentiles into the temple and has defiled the holy place. Pick this up in verse 33. Then the tribune came upon him and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Listen, what Agabus was saying was absolutely true. He was bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. We come to this place where this, this place is going crazy. It's going Man, we're going to kill him. We're going to take him out. We're going to make sure that he never preaches this message ever again. As he's being led off, this mob is continually surrounding him, continually attacking. And Paul asks the, the people that have him captive, and he says, hey, can I say something? This appeal that's given in verse 40. He says, and we had, when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. When they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. 
You read the next passage of Scripture, Paul does what Paul typically does in these situations. He shares who Jesus is. He shares the message of Christ. He shares with them the understanding of what Jesus Christ died on the cross for as we know it as the gospel. What's interesting is that he relates to them. He speaks to them in their own language. He connects with them. And they listen up to a point. We pick this up in verse 22. It says, up to this word, they listen to him. And the results begin to come in. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from this earth, for he should not be allowed to live. You know what his fatal flaw was in front of these folks? He told them God had called him to the Gentiles. The people of an unclean race, the people that were outcasts, the people that were not included in who Jesus is and what the gospel was. He says, God's called me to go to them. And at this point, they get so mad and they say, go ahead and kill him. Go ahead and take care of him. Get him out of here. So they begin to go forward and they lay Paul out on this place to be flogged. They're getting ready to beat him. And Paul says, are you supposed to do this to a Roman citizen? Here's the understanding. Roman citizens were not allowed to be beaten publicly or to be flogged. There was so much unrest that they were fearful that Paul would now have people turn against them. They unleashed his chains and they let him go through. Can I just give my two cents here? Why didn't Paul lead with this? Why, why go through all of that Because his view of God was big. He wasn't concerned of what people were going to do to him, how people were going to go after him. He was not fearful at all because he did not have a bite-sized view of God. So let me share with you a few things on how to be unstoppable. The first thing in Paul's view of having a king-sized God was this. Paul knew that he had to worship the right things. See, it's interesting that Paul was a tent maker and every time he would come into a place, he would set up and he would begin to work and he would begin to meet people. And as he began to meet people, he would begin to tell them about who Jesus is. And as he would start these churches, he didn't get consumed with being a tent maker. Look, I guarantee you that Paul was probably a very skilled guy and he could have gotten so wrapped up in his job that he missed the mission that God called him to be a part of. Listen, I think one of the things that happens to us, especially as, a, as Americans, is that we get so fixated, so focused on something other than God. Love what Paul's response in the book of Philippians is. In chapter 1, verse 21. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Paul said, if I live, I'm going to glorify God. I'm going to worship Him with everything that I am. 
If I die, I'm with him. I'm good. You know what happens when we begin to worship the right things? We stop fearing the wrong things. Success, all the things that we should be accomplishing. The second is this, how to be unstoppable. How to be unstoppable and having this king-sized view of God is that we would learn through trials. In James chapter 1 and verse 2 through 4, Scripture is laid out this, this way. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Can I tell you one of the major problems in the church today? When Christians go through trials, they quit. Oh my, they asked me to do something. Can you believe that this is, why are they doing this? Why are, why are they moving forward? Why won't they just leave me alone? Listen, we get so mad and so upset in churches that we get to a point where we go, I quit, I'm done. Listen, communities are littered with people that have gotten frustrated and quit. As Christians, we have to begin to view these trials differently. We have to begin to persevere through them. Listen, life is difficult. Things are tough. And if we have a king-sized view of God, we know that he's going to get us through. Amen? know that he's with us. One of the things that I, I probably regret the most is that when I was little, I took piano lessons. And so I still remember one song. And I, I remember this song because I think I had to play it at a recital. And so don't be fearful, I'm not going to sing with this song. Uh, but if you know the song, just kind of shouted out or whatever, but I, I learned this song, and this song is still in my brain today. Every time I sit at a piano, and listen, I, I would love to play this more, but I, I still only know this one song. I know Chopsticks, but that's not really prevalent to this. So let me play the one song. Sorry, a little rusty. know that song? El Shaddai? Yeah, thank you. You can applaud. Uh, we can clap in church. Y'all clap for the worship team. Y'all better clap for me if I play a song, right? Uh, but it's crazy because when we think about this, you know what's interesting? I quit doing this because my friends started making fun of me. Well, listen, this is one of the biggest regrets for me because 
It is calming and peaceful. And look, my mom told me, she said, Jeff, your hands tickle the ivories. I didn't even know what that meant at that time, but I was like, does that mean I'm getting in trouble? (laughs) But it's something powerful. And I think, man, what if I could lead people in worship through that? Listen, I'm telling you, uh, I was talking to Stephanie's one of our uh, piano players, and she goes, you better not turn my guys against playing piano. But the reality is this, I wish I could still continue to play. But imagine if Paul quit. If the first time he got shipwrecked in Malta, he looked at God and he was like, I'm out. This is way too difficult. Imagine if the first time that he got chased out of the city for preaching the gospel and he goes, man, I used to do this to people. This is really not good on the other end. He was like, you know what? I'd rather go back to being the one that would persecute. Imagine if Paul said, you know what, this is way too difficult. People are constantly trying to kill me. People are constantly, I'm I'm sitting in jail. I'm done. I want you to think, if you learn through every trial, the third thing to knowing a king-sized God and knowing what he can do is remember the only God matters. Do you know that up to this point, Paul had so many things to call back on. He could look and say, man, God showed up to me on the road to Damascus. He led me to people that would teach me the right way. He allowed me to be called to the Gentiles. He could look back and see where God rescued him from a shipwreck. He could see how God continued to work. I ask you this morning, what is your view of God? Do you have a very small, bite-sized view of God? Because I can promise you, if you only have this small, bite-sized view of God, you're not doing much for the kingdom. I tell you, the only way to grow and to know and understand who God is is to understand more about him. Listen, maybe you've graduated to this, or maybe you're like the majority of believers that say, this is just enough God for me. People don't really bother me. I'm not really affected by it. I'm okay just being average. I'll tell you, the culture around us needs people that have a king-sized view of God. Let me close with this thought. The size of your God determines the size of your faith. Let's begin to view God as king-sized and start living like he can do anything. Everybody would bow their heads and close their eyes just for a second. Worship team is going to come forward and begin to play and begin to sing. I ask you this morning, what is your view of God? Is it small? Is it bite-sized? Is it minuscule? Is it, is it hard to trust? 
Listen, people that are in this position with a small view of God trust God so little. Maybe it's time for you to trust him for the first time. Maybe you've been doing this for a while and you've kind of gotten grown weary. You've placed your hope and you've placed your, your, your thought process and what people can do. And you've been let down. This morning I ask you to genuinely consider how do you know God? Is he small and insignificant to you or is he the most important to you? So we're going to sing a song here in just a second. And I ask you, when we sing this song, that you would cry out these words, that you would really, truly believe the words that are being expressed. That you would begin to see God as king-size, not as small and insignificant. Dear Father, I come to you humbly and thankful for the way that you work. Lord, you are a good God and a gracious God. And Father, you are a big, massive God. Lord, our city, our community, our surrounding areas need our church to begin to see you as a king-sized God. Father, I refuse to not know you more. Lord, with everything that you've revealed to me, everything that you've done for me, Lord, I grow in my knowledge of you and my understanding of you. And Father, it makes me even more bold. Lord, for those that have kind of dropped back and quit, Lord, I pray that you would give them a, a renewed energy, that they would see you as this king-sized God that can satisfy, that can lead them, that can guide them, and can do far more than what they ever thought could be accomplished. Father, it's time for the church to stop viewing you as bite God, your desire is that more and more people would know who you are. And may this church be a part of that. May the people that are sitting here today stop viewing you as a small God and begin to know who you really are. Father, I love you and I praise you this morning. And I thank you for being a good God. God, touch us now in your name. Everybody would stand as we sing this last worship song. Just we'll continue to cry out as we sing this together.